Please remain standing as we read God's word. So this scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. Now open our ears and hearts so we may receive from you this life-changing word and be with Pastor Michael as he brings your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Christ Church. Uh, My name is Michael Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here. As always, it's a privilege to be able to worship with you and to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. As you just heard from Roger, uh, a well-known passage today, the full armor of God. It's a staple in many of our children's picture Bibles. Uh, In fact, uh, my parents have this VHS tape of when I was in first grade, Christian school talent show, dressed in the plastic uh, armor, reciting this passage. Uh, It's one of my mom's favorites. Uh, And while that picture may be like equal parts adorable and cheesy, the passage today is actually much more serious. Uh, There is a spiritual battle that is so real, including an enemy with actual power, that the Apostle Paul chose to place this passage at the culmination of this glorious letter to the Ephesian churches. And God's word to them is also God's word for us this morning. This is a heavy passage because you don't just wear armor for no reason. And yet, it's a deeply encouraging passage. So, I hope that you will see that as we move through. And as we move through, I encourage you to have your Bible open as well as uh, if you want to follow along on the outline in your bulletin, we'll look at four things. The need for the armor, the supplier of the armor, the pieces of the armor, and the people of the armor. So first, the need. In verses 11 through 13, Paul paints a picture of spiritual warfare. He talks about the schemes of the devil. He talks about the fact that we are wrestling in hand-to-hand combat against cosmic powers and spiritual forces. 
But if this passage isn't just a disconnected PS at the end of the letter, but it's something that's uh, culminating all of what's happened in the previous five plus chapters, how does it fit? Why are we even still talking about the devil if Christ has already defeated him? Verse 10 begins with the word, finally. So what has come before this? Hang with me, I'm going to do a quick recap of the book of Ephesians, kind of get us in context. In chapter 1, we're told that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that he chose us and loved us and adopted us, and by Jesus' death on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven. He then says that we have an eternal inheritance that is guaranteed for us by the Holy Spirit. We're told that after Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, but God raised him from the dead and seated him in heavenly places, and that he has a place above all rulers and authority and power and dominion, and we're seated there with him. We're told in chapter 2 that we've been brought from death to life, from following the evil, uh, from following evil to being re- uh, made new in the image of Jesus, And that this good news unites a diverse people, Jews and Gentiles, become one together under the banner of Christ. In chapter 4, we're told that Jesus conquered evil and the spoils of war that he gets from that, he gives to us as gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, the united work of the ministry of the church. We learn that we're no longer darkened in our understanding, but we're renewed in our minds so that we can put on a new self, put off the old self, that we are a light as children of God. And that through the Spirit, we can honor God and have humble hearts and sing and encourage one another and practice humble submission, that there is no sphere of life that goes untouched by Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. So if all of that glorious, everything I just said is true, and it is, that Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and death by his own death and resurrection, then why do we still need this armor? Isn't the battle already won? That brings us to the familiar idea that we talk about a lot, that the Christian life is lived in the in-between, the already and the not yet. That Christ already has won the final victory, and yet there are still real spiritual forces that are working even now, until Christ comes back one day and puts them away for good. We're living in this in-between time. It's a little bit of a silly uh, illustration, but it helps me. Have you ever heard about a chicken that can still run around after it gets its head cut off? I saw online when I Googled that, one chicken did that for 18 months, which is crazy. But it's the idea that 
Satan has already been defeated, and yet there's, it's, there's still this ongoing effect of evil forces in the world that we have to reckon with. And we feel this. It's visceral to us. We know that even now as God is redeeming all things, we feel this sense of the lingering brokenness and darkness in our world. So we need the armor because the battle is real and it's unavoidable. Look back at verse 12. It says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not a physical battle. It is not a crusade. It is not a culture war, but it is real. We forget sometimes as modern people that things we cannot see, things we can't uh, evaluate based on the scientific method can actually be real. One author puts it this way. He says, the choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian, but whether you will be a prepared Christian soldier or an unprepared one. The battle is unavoidable. Think about it a different way. When you're a little kid on the playground and you're playing tag and someone runs up and t- uh, someone tags you and you can say, oh, I wasn't playing, that, that works in the game of tag, but we can't opt out of the spiritual warfare that comes with the Christian life. The battle is real. Why is that? Because the devil is scheming. Look at verse 11 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We sang earlier, sorry, water is wonderful, but it has ice. Um, We sang earlier in a mighty fortress, for lo, his doom is sure. We said that the devil's defeat is final And yet he's still running around like a chicken with his head cut off. What does he want? He wants it. He wants to make God's people ineffective, to make us believe lies, to distrust the promises of God. Even though we are on the the winning side, we know his doom is sure The devil is still at work in our world, working against God's good plan. And as we've said before, this gets worked out in the everyday situations of life that we've been talking about the last few weeks. He doesn't want marriages that are built on wives submitting out of reverence for Christ, husbands laying down their lives for their wives. He wants husbands and wives to turn against each other. He wants us to think that the battle is against our spouse when it's not. He wants children and parents to be at odds instead of submitting out of reverence for the Lord. He, wants, he doesn't want the church to be united. He wants us to be separated, divided, at war, or if we are united, uniting around politics or personalities instead of around the cross. 
He wants us to live our everyday lives apart from reliance on the power and promises of God. And the bad news is that we cannot stand up to him on our own. But this bad news is also good news. Our strength is insufficient, but look at what verse 10 says. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The word there, be strong, in the Greek means something more like be made strong or be strengthened. This isn't about us making ourselves strong. It's not a call to to raise up our strength, but to confess our weakness. That's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12. He comes to peace with God telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is Paul's response to that? He says that he will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Putting on the armor of God is coming to grips with our own weaknesses and insufficiencies and instead making our only hope in Christ. Christ-oriented weakness keeps us near the cross. Remember that. We'll sing about it after this sermon. So we need this armor because the battle is real and our own strength is insufficient. But where does it come from? Let's look at our second point, the supplier of the armor. The supplier of the armor. God is the one who supplies us with the armor. That may sound like a very basic statement, but it's one that we need to be reminded of because our sinful human tendency is to feel that everything relies on us. We're so quick to forget that God actually delights in supplying his children with grace for every area and aspect of our lives. And the supplier of the armor is himself a warrior. Throughout Scripture, God is described as the divine warrior, fighting evil to protect his people and to accomplish his purposes. I would encourage you, do a study in the Old Testament of God as the divine warrior. It's really fascinating. And yet, How does this warrior ultimately defeat his enemies? It's not through strength, but through weakness. Jesus conquered by being conquered. He defeated death by dying on the cross. Just like we've seen the last few weeks in Pastor Andrew's sermons on marriage and parenting and slaves and submission, There is this upside-down nature to gospel revolution. So we don't need to be strong in ourselves, but to be strengthened in the Lord by trusting that our conquered yet resurrected and conquering Savior will fight for us. So where does this armor come from? 
Every piece of the armor is battle-worn by Christ. I don't know if you noticed, but earlier in the service, we read from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. Listen to what it says about the, the Messiah, the divine warrior. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Does that sound familiar? Paul is drawing from Old Testament imagery of God putting on armor to write this passage about the armor of God. We're going to go through each of the pieces, but I wanted to say that this armor isn't random. It's not something new. It's the very work of Christ that covers his people. Think about it this way. The armor of God is not an unwanted hand-me-down from an older sibling. It's more like a game-worn jersey from your favorite athlete. The stains make it not less valuable, but more valuable. We don't make the armor. The armor wasn't even originally made for us. Sometimes if you buy clothing, you go to a tailor to get it fitted just for you. Here the opposite is happening. God is tailoring us to fit, to conform to the image of Christ. We are clothed in Christ and made more and more into his image so that the armor is everything we need to stand firm in the fight of faith. Listen to this quote from a couple pastors who wrote a great little book on spiritual warfare. They say this, wearing spiritual armor is an essential element of putting on Christ and applying the new life of grace in him. It is not something separate. Putting on God's armor is taking what God has so richly supplied in his son and appropriating it personally each day. When we put on God's armor, we're doing more than applying a technique or method. We're doing something personal. We are putting on Christ himself. If Christ is all sufficient, then everything we need to be covered is found in him. Did you catch that? Putting on the armor is putting on Christ. Tim Keller puts it in a slightly different way. He says, the armor is a symbol of the benefits and privileges of the gospel. So God isn't giving us anything new. He's reminding us of what is already true for those of us who put our trust in Jesus. We've seen that theme all throughout this letter of, of Ephesians. It's not, here's a new command. It's, this is true of you. Now live like it's true. Live into the reality of your identity in Christ. So let's look at the pieces of the armor. Third point, the pieces of the armor and how they symbolize the benefits and privileges of the gospel. And these are not like a la carte, mix and match items. They're a holistic picture of putting on Christ. Yet it's helpful to kind of look at each one to see a different facet of the gospel diamond. So first, we see the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Look at verse 14. 
It says, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Think about how important a belt is. You couldn't run into the battle without the belt holding things up and holding things out of the way. It's an essential piece of armor, and truth is an essential piece of the Christian life. We need it because we're not just called to be hearers of the word, passive listeners, but to be doers of the word as well. God wants us to discern truth from falsehood, right from wrong, arrange our lives according to the truth. Ephesians earlier said that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. But Satan attacks truth on every level. His nickname is the father of lies. Think back to the garden when he whispered to Eve, did God really say? He slyly and subtly attacks truth by taking what God has said and twisting it ever so slightly to where it serves his own purposes instead of God's purposes. He subverts truth by convincing us to settle for half-truths. Sometimes it looks like him convincing us to loosen our grip on what we know to be the clear teaching of God's word. Things like sin and greed and sexuality. Other times, it looks like him causing us to elevate things that are a personal opinion to the same level as the standard of God's ultimate truth turning us into judgmental, argumentative, legalistic Pharisees who struggle to love each other and have compassion for one another. Yet the belt of truth is ours. Jesus already wore it for us. He is full of grace and truth. He lived a life marked by perfect truth. He is the very word of God. So the belt of truth reminds us that our lives are not our own, but they belong fully to God. When lies come in, we can fight against them. We can remember what God has clearly said and that everything he says is true. Next, we're called to take up the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness reminds us that the righteousness we have is not our own, but Christ is given for us. One pastor makes the point that Satan attacks us with two lies. One, that God doesn't really love us. And two, that sin doesn't really matter. That God doesn't love us and that sin doesn't matter. The breastplate of righteousness fights both of those lies because it tells us that our sin mattered enough that Jesus had to die for us. But in dying for us, he gives us his righteousness, and he calls us to become more and more like him. And it reminds us that God loves us. He loves us enough to send his son to die for us. Christ lived a perfect life. He never once disobeyed the word of God. If you trust him, if he's your savior, 
His perfect record is now yours. You can wear it. Third, we see gospel shoes. Gospel shoes. Look at verse 15. It says this, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, in the book of Isaiah, it has this beautiful line, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. In order for people to come to know Jesus, we have to share the gospel with them. And only in knowing Jesus can real lasting peace be found. That's what we read earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, that Jesus came to bring peace where there was discord. But Satan doesn't want peace. He wants us to forget that real peace is possible. He wants us to be afraid that telling someone the truth of the gospel might lead to us being rejected. Or to become so distracted by the everyday things of life that we forget that there is a world at war that needs the good news of peace. Yet Christ came as the perfect evangelist. He came all the way from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost, to rescue captives, to proclaim the gospel, and to make the gospel a reality through his life, death, and resurrection. Whenever we share the gospel, we are proclaiming Christ. When you feel discouraged in your efforts, that same gospel forgives you and comforts your heart. And it's not just a gospel that's an out there gospel. It's a reminder that we need to be reminded of truth on a daily basis. We preach the gospel to ourselves so that we're not taking anyone where we haven't already been to the very foot of the cross. Peace comes through rest. We can only have it when we rest our identity in what Christ has done for us. And then we have the shield of faith. The shield of faith. It says in verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This imagery of the shield is used all throughout the book of Psalms. We saw it Earlier, when you read it, we see that God is a stronghold for His people. The, The most ultimate attack that Satan had, the one where we deserve to die for our sin, Jesus became the shield for us. He took our place so that we may not have to die the death that we deserve. What does it look like to remind ourselves of the truth of the shield of faith? It's not just a general belief in God, but it's believing that everything God says is true, that it's throwing our whole lives at Him in trust. 
that God is in control over everything, and then that's the best news that there is. When we're tempted to doubt that God is actually good, the shield of faith reminds us that God is good, that everything He works is for the good of His people, that all of His promises are fulfilled in Jesus. That leads us to the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. None of the other pieces of the armor matter if you don't have salvation in Christ. And in finding salvation gives ultimate hope. We sing about how Christ is the sure and steady anchor for our souls. The hope offered in the gospel is not a possibility. It's not a coin flip. It is a gospel certainty. And yet, it is very, very normal for people who know that they are saved to still struggle with doubt. Maybe you've come in even today wondering, does God really love me? Are His promises really true? Or maybe on the other side, maybe you've slipped into a mentality where you have to earn the love of God and you say, I know that God is a loving God. I know that He saves. But does He save me? Look at what I've done. Look at the, the things in my heart, look at the, the signs of wickedness that I still see. The helmet of salvation reminds us that our salvation is not in the strength or certainty of our own efforts, but in what Jesus has done for us. And it marks us out as the people of God. We're going to see in the second service, sorry, most of you will miss it unless you double dip on services, we'll see a baptism where God marks out someone for himself and says, this person is part of my covenant people. The helmet of salvation is our reminder that we belong to God. Jesus trusted his father completely in the garden and on the cross. He uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that his people would never have to say those words ourselves. He is our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. This sort of certainty... This month, we've been praying uh, for the persecuted church. The helmet of salvation, the security we have in the gospel is what leads Christians all around the world to not just live for their faith, but to die for it. It gives them boldness because they're secure. They know that the battle isn't against flesh and blood. Martin Luther, the song we sang earlier, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. So then we're invited to look at the final piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says this, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
All of the weapons previously have primarily been defensive weapons. The sword of the Spirit is an offensive weapon. We're called to take God's word and to go into battle with it. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Do you remember what happened? He had been fasting and Satan tempted him, giving him, uh, trying to get him to shortcut all of the things that God has promised, trusting uh, not in God's power, but in Satan's power. And what was Jesus' response when Satan tempted him? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quoted scripture to the devil. God wants us to be a people who are so equipped, so bathed in his word that under duress, this is what comes out. There was a, a, my high school English teacher, I'm going to, I hope I get it right. He used to talk about, I think it was a story told by John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, about this group of women who would sit around and they would talk. And he said, if you prick them, they bleed Bible. They were so saturated with God's word that it, that it was the way they responded to anything that happened. Not in a trite way, not in a, like we all know the person who you tell them like a real thing in your life and they quote like a, a Bible verse as a way of dismissing what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. Saying that the only real power that we have is found in the very word of God. So we should put it, we, we should spend time uh, memorizing it reading it, talking about it in community, letting it shape us. So we have all of these pieces of the armor that, that as a total remind us, all of this already belongs to us in Christ. It's a reminder that the gospel is real and that we need it each day. And yet our passage goes one step further. It's not just a thing that we do or a piece that we remember uh, and identifying with Christ, we see also that we're called to be a people of the armor. It shapes us as a community. Look at verse 18. It says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The focus of that verse is on prayer, which Pastor Andrew will talk more about next week. But prayer, prayer is the thing that holds the entire armor together. It's the mechanism by which we put on the armor. It's the thing that enables us to utilize it. It's recognizing that God supplies everything we need that he's called us for. Prayer is not acting as though God were a cosmic vending machine where we get what we want, but it is an act of surrender, that what he gives is enough. But the prayer that we're encouraged to do here is not just for us. We're called to make supplication for all the saints. It's interesting 
that that comes right after it says to keep alert with all perseverance. The goal of this entire passage about the armor of God, it says multiple times to stand, to stand firm, stand strong. This continual command to stand firm means that God is calling us to persevere. The battle is already won, and yet we're living in this already and not yet. Don't give up when the victory is certain. And we're, we're told that that perseverance is tied with us praying for each other. Praying for each other. Prayer goes against our natural instincts. At least for some of us. Some of us, I, I don't know if this describes you, but you might be a very much a, a doer, fix-it, tangible help person. And if that's you, God bless you. We need you. But sometimes we think that prayer won't actually do anything. That it's our job to bear all the burdens of everything else on our own. To fix needs. But praying for each other is a reminder that God can do more than we can. It's not our own efforts. It's the promises of God in action. So we're called to pray for each other. And we're called to remind each other of the bigger story. You will have times in your life on a regular basis where the warfare that you see in front of you on a small scale feels like everything there is. And you will lose sight of the bigger picture. That Christ has already won. Victory belongs to God's people through Jesus. We need each other to, to help us all get our eyes fixed back on the big picture. That Christ wins. And lastly, I want to say that this armor, this being clothed in Christ, is not just for us as individuals, but it's also true for us as a corporate people, as the church. God's people as a whole are being connected with Christ, clothed in his armor. One person says it this way, the church then is the place where the, where the world encounters Jesus Christ and the agency through which Jesus Christ blesses the world with his love and grace. And just as Jesus was subject to the assaults of the powers during his time here on earth, the church now battles against the powers and authorities arrayed against God's purposes in the world. When Jesus' disciples were discouraged because people hated them, he said, I'll paraphrase, don't worry. They don't hate you. They hate me. It's the fact that you're on my team that makes them hate you. Even in the midst of spiritual warfare, persecution, difficulty, as a people, we identify with a suffering Savior.
We are with Jesus. Any attack cannot prevail because Jesus has already won. I'll close with this. Uh, Some of you know that every year we give out a devotional for families to use. Uh, And by God's providence, today's devotional passage is our text today. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to read this conclusion because it gets us thinking also about how we are supposed to be on the offensive. Listen to this. The war is not is not just coming to us, but we are going to war. But what are the weapons we fight with? They are humility, love, truth, courage, faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom. These are unusual weapons. We fight like Jesus did when he came to this dark world. He is the Lord of light, and he calls us to bring the light of his love into this dark world. Brothers and sisters, when you are clothed in Christ, you are able to bring light into a world filled with darkness who needs to know the love of a Savior who actually forgives sin and actually defeats evil. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that your word is good and true. Help us to remember all the promises of the gospel. Help us to remind each other. Make us a people of prayer. And help us to defeat the schemes of the evil one, so that you might be glorified and your kingdom might grow. We pray all this in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen.